Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored, the podcast for dedicated smut seekers. I'm Aoife Vretnach, a historian, hoping my morals will be corrupted by unwholesome literature. So far, not seeing any effects. If you do like the podcast, please, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. And if you do want to further support the show, there are links to my Patreon page and merch in the show notes. This episode is about book three of the Country Girls trilogy. Girls in Their Married Bliss was published in 1964 and, like all of O'Brien's 1960s novels, instantly banned by the Irish censors. I've covered the preceding volumes in episodes 1 and 5 of this season if you want to go and catch up on those before hearing how the trilogy ends. But if it makes you feel any better, I didn't read The Country Girls in its proper order at all. While waiting for the library to deliver books one and two, I started reading this one because I found it in a second-hand shop. And I was blown away, truly astonished at how urgent and funny and sad it was. It isn't even 200 pages long. It's a slim, pocket-rocket novel. You can absolutely enjoy it without knowing what happened in the earlier novels, but obviously this episode is informed by having read them all now. Firstly, I'd just like to take a moment and admire the title, Girls in Their Married Bliss. Readers who believe in happy endings will smile, but if you're suspicious of marriage as a happy ending, you might suspect she's taking the piss. No surprises, she is absolutely taking the piss. The novel follows Kathleen and her friend Baba in their continuing adventures. They've now emigrated to London, where they've moved to find new jobs and new men. The drink to go with this book is gin fizz. I mean, there's loads of gin in both novels. The girls are very partial to a pink gin in books one and two. Unfortunately, this isn't the celebratory fun gin fizz drink you might expect. This is the very first sentence. Not long ago, Kate Brady and I were having a few gloomy gin fizzes up London, bemoaning the fact that nothing would ever improve, that we'd die the way we were, enough to eat, married, dissatisfied. Straight away you know that married bliss is married misery. 
This instantly undercuts any romantic expectations you might have had from the title. Now, if you don't fancy a depressing gin fizz, there's lots of wine drunk at some terrible dinner parties. Unlike in the other novels, the drinking here has a desperate edge to it, a search for stimulation or annihilation. There isn't a lot of happy drinking in the final instalment of the trilogy. Now, before I go on, some of you will have noticed I said the two main characters were Baba and Kathleen, but that first sentence, written in Baba's voice, mentions Kate. Kathleen, the heroine of the first two novels, has vanished, to be replaced by Kate, because that's the name her husband prefers. In book two, when Kathleen first met Eugene, an English divorcee, he decided to call her Kate because, quote, Kathleen was too Kiltartan for his liking, unquote. Kiltartan actually appears in a Yeats poem, An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. But there's a sneering, twisted belittling of her name and of ideas of recovering and celebrating Irishness in this particular dig by Eugene. Because, of course, Kate is the English form of the Irish language name Kathleen. There are a lot of colonial conquest overtones here. But throughout book two, she remains resolutely Kathleen to all the other characters, and it seems to herself. Tragically, from the first line of this book, she is no longer Kathleen. It turns out that she met Eugene again in England and took up with him, finally marrying him. Her shift from Kathleen to Kate is now final. Baba, her oldest friend, is telling this story and yet even she calls her Kate. It's an ominous sign of how the relationship with Eugene has taken her over completely. I know you're thinking I was lying about it being funny, but it's both bleak and hilarious and we will get to the funnies, I promise. So why do I think it was banned? We know it's because the censors had it in for O'Brien, but what if they were open-minded and actually read it, like they were supposed to do? They wouldn't have gotten further than page one anyway, because there's a wedding of a heavily pregnant bride to a divorced man. And here is Baba's description of the whole thing. It's a long quote, but I do want to introduce you to her really distinctive voice. We weren't there a year when she re-met a crank called Eugene Gilliard, who she'd known in Ireland. They took up their old refrain, fell in love, or thought they did, and lost no time in making puke out of it. The marriage was in the sacristy of a Catholic church. Question of having to. They wouldn't do it out front, because he was divorced and she was heavily pregnant. I was bridesmaid, pink chiffon and a hat with a veil for which they paid. I looked like the bride. She was in a big, floppy, striped maternity dress and a child's face in her. She's sly, the sort that would look like a child even if she kept her mother in a wardrobe. The priest didn't look towards her stomach once. I think that's a perfect example of how you could be both disturbed and amused at the same time. I find Baba's brazen tone so refreshing and appealing that I can't help sniggering along. She's a great storyteller. Her caustic delivery, there's her sceptical eye, but best of all, she has a peculiarly Irish rhythm. She doesn't speak any Irish dialect in particular, but yet the idiom is very Irish. Naturally, she's not the nice kind of Irish girl featured on postcards, the winsome Irish Colleen all modest smiles. No tourist board would feature a pushy brass-necked woman like Baba. 
She's a hard case and I fucking love her. It's also really brilliant to get Baba's perspective after two novels written entirely from Kathleen's point of view. And she's even more breathtaking than I had imagined. I'm not sure what I want more, to be honest, to be Baba or to be best mates with her. I don't want you thinking she confines all her bile for Kate's choices. She doesn't lose any time in slagging off her own marriage to a man called Frank, an Irish builder. She gives a rundown of their courtship in chapter one. After six dates, they ended up in bed in her tiny freezing garret. Frank is completely stocious, so things are not going well. There's a lot of drifting off to sleep when he should be trying to get her out of her clothes. So this is just five pages into the book. That went on for a while, him fumbling, then dozing, until finally said, how do we do it? And I knew that was why he hadn't made passes sooner. An Irishman, good at battles, sieges and massacres, bad in bed. But I expected that. It made him a hell of a sight nicer than most of the sharks I'd been out with, who expected you to pay for the pictures, raped you in the back seat, came home, ate your baked beans, then wanted some new experimental kind of sex. And no worries from you about might you have a baby, because they liked it natural, without gear. Well, there's a lot to unpack and admire in that. Her fatalistic acceptance of the bottomless levels of sexual ignorance from a fellow Irishman. And then her fury at men who consume women, who arrogantly assume they can have it all their own way all the time. You can really feel the resentment over eating her food in her flat. It adds insult to injury and really emphasises their greed. It's the extra detail, I think, that elevates this sentence. It's quite easy to shock by talking about sexual assault, but adding in the baked beans, it's just brilliant. And obviously, this sexual frankness and pungent critique was, you know, wildly inappropriate for the censors. Moving on to chapter two, we meet Kate again. Now, her narrative isn't first person like Baba's, so it's a third person point of view. As a result, it's a lot less immediate and punchy, closer in style to the previous novels. We also get to see Baba according to Kate, and this is page 19 in my edition. Baba had green eyes that dropped at the corners and were inclined to flashes of wickedness. An occasional blow from her husband gave to one or other of those green eyes a permanent knowingness, as if at 25 she realised what life was all about. She had plans for them both to leave their husbands one day when they'd accumulated furs and diamonds, just as once she had planned that they would meet and marry rich men and live in houses with bottles of booze opened and unopened on silver trays. Now that might not have Baba's sarky tone, but it's no less gut-wrenching for that. The fact that Baba is beaten by her husband doesn't appear in chapter one. It's interesting because the Baba we meet in chapter one is hard as nails and seems brutally honest, but it turns out she's lying and concealing as well. There's presumably an element of shame involved. And suddenly you feel pity for both of them in equal measures. Poor Kate is extremely unhappily married to Eugene. I mean, there's no surprises there. Anyone who can change your name isn't likely to have your best interests at heart. But the depth of his nastiness and his pettiness is mesmerising. 
This man has to be one of the worst husbands in literature. He's manipulative, cruel and judgmental. While in book two he was condescending, sometimes treating her like a young fool, nothing could prepare you for the sour nastiness of Eugene, the disappointed husband. Kate is seeing another man and Eugene senses this, though he has no proof, of course. To be spiteful, he begins to remark on her, quote, slackening midriff. One of the consistent themes from book two was Kathleen's belief that she was too big and too fat, so this is really bitter. But it gets even worse, and yes, there is worse than that. In their family home live Eugene, Kate, their son Cash, and their maid Mora. When Christmas comes, Eugene gives presents to the child and the maid, but not his wife. His justification is, quote, I give presents when I want to, not out of duty. Just unbelievable. What a load of shite. This double-dealing, emotionally abusive arsehole makes me feel ill. She tries very hard to play him at this game, but she fails utterly because her heart isn't in it. Of course, she feels guilty over the affair, but she's also really dependent on Eugene's approval. As the novel progresses, the full horror of Eugene's behaviour emerges. He replaces Kate with Maura the maid and steals cash from his mother. It is the absolute worst. Kate is soon adrift in London, alone and bereft. She is comprehensively hollowed out by the collapse of her family, by how her happily ever after stole her self-respect. If ever there was a cautionary tale about marital bliss, it's Kate's story. I was just furious reading it, absolutely ripping for her. The viciousness and the hatred she endures from Eugene, it's quite shocking. Right, that's the really grim bit out of the way. Some of the rest is grim, but it's not as grim. Back to Baba, who can at least deliver the darkness in a funny package. I don't want to make extravagant claims here, but O'Brien has written one of the funniest sex scenes ever in Chapter 7, and it's between Baba and a drummer called Harvey, who she met at a party. She was hot for him from the moment she saw him, but getting laid by an earnest, artistic type turns out to be quite difficult. Baba eventually gets him into her house, where they drink tea and try to avoid Mrs Cooney, the woman who cleans and cooks. When Baba literally pushes the nosy old battle axe out the front door, she can sit down to enjoy her drummer boy. Bear in mind she's horny as hell, and all this fella can do is eat cake and smoke cigars. She might be hanging for it, but she has to pretend to be patient. And then it gets really funny. This is from page 63. We were getting nowhere. Come and sit near me, I said. I prefer to look at you from here, he said. The human face is not made for close-ups. There is only one time when it is bearable, that is. He stopped as if he was going to say something revolutionary, for God's sake. On a pillow. Plenty of pillows in the linen cupboard, I said to be funny. I made a fool of myself twenty times per minute. Then he stood up, took hold of one of the drumsticks and came over and started drumming me, mainly on the bosoms. Playful as hell. I don't know if you go in for that sort of thing, but there's no fun in it. Merciful God. I just felt I was being pummeled. Turn round, he said. I got a few on the bottom. Yes, you heard right. He played her tits and arse as if she was a drum. It's priceless. He's such a poser, that line about the 
human face being bearable on the pillow. My God, he's such a wanker. It's brilliant because one of the big problems writers face when writing about sex is the cringe factor. When disbelief or ridiculousness makes readers laugh. But O'Brien just makes sure she's making you laugh deliberately. There isn't any time for cringing. Baba's just a girl standing in front of a drummer boy asking him to ride her. Unfortunately for her, the bad foreplay continues on page 64. Well, for the record, we got up there about two hours later, by which time you could have carried me on a stretcher. I was so exhausted. It was a ritual. I had to be drummed all over, then spin on my toes and play the damn drum with my fingers while he played it with his, and then kiss at a certain ordained moment, and not even got any pleasure out of it. It was like drill at school. I had to act as if there was nothing happening. Not that there was much going on. Now, one, two, three, begin, he'd say. We had to keep time, too. Talk about Pavlov's dogs. I'd have swapped with any of them. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Poor Baba, she has terrible taste. This guy is just not worth the effort. Earlier, he had boasted he had studied the art of lovemaking since he was 14. The irony is that Baba had complained to her husband before about inadequate foreplay. So it just shows you should be careful what you wish for. I just adore the excruciating detail in this, the seemingly endless litany of miscommunication between Baba and Harvey. It continues in an extended commentary on gender, kink, sex education and homosexuality. No, really, all of that and an electric blanket too. Like this from page 65. Well, I plugged in the old electric blanket and we plunged in. Have you ever had a woman? he said. Plenty, said I. I didn't know for a minute what he meant. Did you ever use milk bottles? he said, and then it struck me what he meant. I said no, not at all. Had he ever had a man? What makes you think that? he said, real huffy. I didn't think it. 
I thought nothing to tell you the truth, except that we were taking a long time to do what millions of people do every hour of the day before they go to their work or eat their breakfast or cut their toenails. Of course, he's the type of guy who thinks women should have same-sex encounters, but is offended if you ask him about male same-sex encounters. He truly is the polar opposite of her husband, Frank, who knows nothing about sex, techniques or even desires. Unfortunately, there's no justice. The sexually aware bloke she drags to bed is just as unsatisfactory. This sex scene, which started on page 62, goes on until page 67. In such a short novel, six pages on one encounter is a lot. There's dressing up in black bras, raincoats, then the sideways attempts at dirty talk featuring rubber, high boots and water. Baba is rarely on the same wavelength as Harvey, so mostly misses all her cues to be the sultry seductress he expects. Eventually, after much hilarious fecking about, this is how it ends. He got all virile then, and with the aid of me, the Southwester and himself, he came out of his sleep and set to to seduce me. We were engaged about four minutes flat when I heard him say, I came. I didn't think I would. You're joking, I said. By now I'd lost any notion I had that things were going to work out. You must promise me something, he said then. Anything, I said. He was that vain he didn't even notice the sarcasm. That you won't get pregnant, he said. I'll try not to, I said. But promise me, he said. He was an imbecile. On second thoughts, I was the imbecile. Now, this is legitimately hilarious, but also really grim. After all of the shenanigans with the clothes and the drums, she only gets four minutes out of him before he comes. And he's not wearing a condom and has the cheek to ask her not to get pregnant. He asks her. Fuck's sake, I mean, the rage would consume you if you let it, if you weren't laughing at the ludicrousness of it. But it's so quick and clever that you keep reading, that you keep wanting to hear more of Baba's extraordinary story. On rereading it, though, I did feel more of the titanic rage behind the wit of the writing. But honestly, doesn't that sex scene deserve an award? Baba's brass neck carries all before her. She's the best brazen hussy I've ever read about. I was thinking back to Anise Nin's very silly sex in A Spy in the House of Love, all the way back in season two. There's sensual masts and everything. It's very silly. If Nin is teaching us how not to write sex, O'Brien is a masterclass in doing it right. Not content with the wildest sex scene ever, O'Brien turns to crisis pregnancy and how to get an abortion in England before it was legal. Because, unfortunately for poor Baba, her mental efforts to prevent pregnancy didn't work. Since she had never been pregnant by her husband, this is doubly fraught. She's determined not to continue the pregnancy, enlisting Kate's help to buy a medical book. When she looks under A for abortion, there is no entry. With no inside knowledge on which doctor might perform one illegally, Baba decides to take care of it herself. The hot path plus castor oil treatment starts, with Kate watching to make sure she doesn't faint away. Instead, typically Kate herself faints three times. In the midst of this stressful, desperate situation, 
O'Brien insists on some bitter humour. And this is page 106. Suddenly I turn round in my sweating condition and she is kneeling down with her hands joined. Get up, I said. Get up, you lunatic. I'm praying, she said. She hadn't said a prayer for years and even I thought it a bit steep that she should be asking help of someone she'd ignored for so long. Nothing short of sacrilege, said I, knowing that would put the wind up her. She was on her feet like lightning, off to change the needle and put on more coal in the boiler. God, I fucking love it. It's so caustic. It's hilarious. Anyway, neither the prayers nor castor oil work, and they have to decide what to do next. And it's interesting that it is both of them deciding together as well. This is very much, this is two friends deciding how to deal with one of the biggest crises in their lives. After lecturing her, Kate persuades Baba to travel all the way to her husband's office to tell him. Naturally, they have to have a few gins along the way, you know, to bolster their courage. But to find out exactly what happened next, you will have to read the book, because I don't want to tell you everything. You should read it anyway, it's bloody brilliant. Before I do censorship bingo, I want to ask a question that seems inevitable. Did experiencing censorship goad O'Brien into writing explicitly about transgressive topics? I'm in two minds about the answer. As her trilogy is about growing up, the more adult the characters become, the more adult the subject matter gets. So marital horror stories are only logical at this point. But the fury and the intensity of the emotions in book three are so striking that I suspect more is going on. This is a much more political novel than the previous two and a stridently feminist one as well. O'Brien also calls out Christianity for its pernicious effects on women's lives. Now, of course, she goes for Catholicism specifically, but her ambition is much bigger than the Irish Catholic Church. I'm going to read out a bit from page 118 that captures the ranty political brilliance that it assumes towards the end. I was thinking of women and all they have to put up with, not just washing napkins or not being able to be high court judges, but all this, all this poking and probing and hurt. And not only when they go to doctors, but when they go to bed as brides with the men that love them. Oh God, who does not exist, You hate women, otherwise you'd have made them different. And Jesus, who snubbed your mother, you hate them more, roaming around all that time with a bunch of men fishing and sermons on the mount, abandoning women. Well, this is an open attack on the values of Western Christianity, basically on the whole edifice of European patriarchy. Could you really say this was prompted by having our first two books banned? I don't think so. In a way, the question underestimates the breadth of O'Brien's vision and her responses to society in Ireland and Britain. I'm sure she enjoyed pissing off the censors, getting under their skin and annoying them. But her work is much bigger than Ireland or the Irish Censorship Board. Their response to her is just a part of what she was doing. Finally, it's time for censorship bingo, to see exactly how much rude and upsetting content is crammed into Girls and Their Married Bliss. Starting, as usual, with breasts. Yes, there's bras and boobs aplenty. Bestiality. No, but you know Baba could have included it in a sideswipe. She's great at getting a dig in here and there. Sex work. 
Yes, Frank, Baba's husband, visits sex workers to get revenge on her. It doesn't really work because she's not that bothered what he does. Racism. Oh yeah, definitely. When Baba tells Frank she's pregnant by someone else, she falsely claims the father is a Greek. He then asks, he then asks whether the baby will be black or white. Yikes. Next up, drugs. Yes, the girls sometimes take sweet dream pills, probably sleeping tablets when things are rough. And then politics. I think I will take this because the levels of feminism and social critique in this book are so high. I mean, it's practically a rant about socio-political justice. Swearing. Yes. I mean, Baba swears and sometimes even Kate does. Then infidelity. Yes, both girls sleep with men who aren't their husbands, but the men also do the same. Crime. This is an interesting one. The violence Frank inflicts on Baba is never construed as crime. There's never a suggestion that the police can be called. And the abuse meted out by Eugene is not criminal either, even though there's loads, of course, of control and emotional abuse here. And that's their tragedy, really. So I can't tick it. But the novel does interrogate the concept of crime and criminality. Genitalia. Oh yes, Harvey the drummer asks Baba, is it big enough for you? And then abortion. Well, yes, you know that. Orgies. Uh, no. To be honest, I don't think they'd manage to drag anyone else into bed with them. The amount of effort they put in to get one bloke in is enormous. They'd be exhausted if they had to get more than one in. Then sexual assault. Yes, because Baba does complain about being raped on dates. Extramarital pregnancy. As you recall from page one, Kate being visibly pregnant when she's getting married. Masturbation. Yes, actually, Baba mentions that Frank wouldn't even have heard of it. Next up, sex toys. Well, if you remember, Baba had to stimulate Harvey with a sou'wester or raincoat. So I think that counts. And then there was all that talk of rubber and soap. Yeah, I think it's kinky enough. I'll take that one. Feminism. Oh, yes, undoubtedly. Divorce. Yes, it's both a thing that happens and a thing that can never happen if you want to appear Catholic enough to keep bishops as customers, as Frank does in his building business. Contraception. Yes, there is even a hysterectomy. Can you believe it? Next up, menstruation. It's another big word poor Frank knows nothing about. And of course, Baba mentions missing her periods when she's pregnant. Blasphemy. I don't even have to argue this one. It's reeking of blasphemy. Saying God doesn't exist, slagging off Jesus for abandoning women. Yeah, this definitely counts as blasphemous. Next up, oral sex. I don't think so. Though I wouldn't be surprised if it was part of Harvey's grand sexual plan. Graphic violence. This is another interesting one, kind of connected to the crime elements. Frank's beatings are feared and talked about, but not actually described. Nonetheless, the way Baba talks about him smashing up furniture and her body is pretty hard-hitting. So I think I can tick it for that. And then finally, LGBTQ plus content. I think those brief references in bed between Harvey and Baba do count. 
So yeah, I can tick that. Well, that comes to 20 out of 25. That's astonishing. Girls in Their Married Bliss must be the rudest novel I've read so far. And there's even more than the bingo topics. There's a quick reference to Magdalene Laundries, discussions about child custody, mental health and breakdown, intimate partner abuse, parental neglect. I mean, it just goes on. It's packed with themes and it's only 160 pages long. It's just a marvel. I love the tension between the chaos and violence of their lives contained within this economical prose. There isn't an extraneous word in it. So you should absolutely read it. Even if you don't read any other O'Brien novel, please read this one. And her critique of misogyny remains depressingly relevant. This week, Ireland has seen candlelit vigils to mark the murder of another woman by yet another man. The bitter hatred of Kate's husband for her and all women resonates particularly strongly for me this week. O'Brien's anger at the pain inflicted on women by men leaps from the page. So this is a novel about gender violence, but it's also about friendship, about how you love your oldest mates, how you help each other through breakups and loneliness. Look at, can you just read it? It's the business. I'm very pleased season six ends on such a smutty high note. Thank you, Edna O'Brien, for this bold little book. Season seven will begin in three weeks' time on February the 7th. I'm going to look at plays, paintings, newspapers, and all sorts in season seven. It's time to broaden the search for indecent material. Think of all the historic filth I haven't played censorship bingo for. The first episode will be about the Playboy riots of 1907, which is a really famous moment in Irish history. In fact, it's gone beyond fame into being a cliché. But it's something I don't know a lot about personally. Did people really riot because a play offended them that much? Sounds amazing. Can't wait to learn about it. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.